Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, Retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Welcome to Moments in Leadership. My name's Dave Armstrong, and the first thing I know everybody wants to understand is what's this podcast all about? So I want people who listen to this podcast to learn about leadership through real relatable stories as told by career military leaders that I plan to interview on this podcast and that the listener won't normally get to hear. I realized while sitting around with some of my friends over the years that our stories that we sit around and tell are really just leadership vignettes that while they are wrapped in some humor, they go lost and unrecorded. And it dawned on me one day that that was really unfortunate and that there was so much that people could learn from hearing about the stories of other people's careers. And by stories, I don't mean lectures and canned speeches and excerpts from books. I don't mean the general officer that comes to the graduation ceremony and stands up for 20 minutes and tells a story about how he remembers back when he was in your shoes. And I don't mean the canned speech that gets given at an official military function like a birthday or a dining in or some other formal event where they're a guest of honor. And, and, and I don't mean the excerpts from books. Those things are great. And we can all go out and hear them, but we could probably all stand up and give them all ourselves. And I was thirsty to get something down into the podcast medium that allowed people to hear these real unfiltered stories. And, and when I say these unfiltered stories, I want to get my guests to share stories about those moments, those moments in their career that became formative to developing their own leadership styles. And I want to hear the moments that are, I want to hear the good ones and I want to hear the bad ones. It's those singular moments that crystallize into lessons and change our behavior and drive future decision-making and ultimately create our own unique personal leadership style. And it's those moments, lessons, decisions, personal leadership styles that can be tied back into the classic leadership traits and principles that are the common core of military leadership. And they can also be used as tools for traditional business leaders to use in their everyday life as well. So this podcast is for anyone who seeks to learn as much as they can about leadership from some of the people who have been doing it for 30 years in an environment that is all about decision-making and leading men and women in very tough conditions. This podcast is for young officers, young enlisted, civilian leaders, small business owners, basically anyone who's interested in hearing the leadership lessons from some of the very best leaders this country has to offer in order to become better leaders themselves. Great. Okay, Dave. Thanks. Sounds great. There's a gazillion podcasts out there. What makes you so qualified? Who are you? What what makes you qualified to do this? I suppose the answer to that is nothing and everything at the same time. My quick background, 
I served a full career on both active duty and in the reserves, primarily as an artillery officer with tours and commands between traditional artillery units and naval gunfire liaison companies, which for those of you that don't know what that means, they are small fire support units that go out and essentially radio contact back with units that can shoot artillery or mortars or naval gunfire or the aircraft that drops bombs. And it's a specialized unit that does that. So between traditional units and Anglico, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Companies, those were most of my tours and commands. I did have some time as a tank officer. I actually retrained as a tank officer when I was in the reserves for a while. So I served in an, in an M1 tank battalion. And I spent some time in the light armored reconnaissance units also as a function of being a, a, a tank officer. That's my quick career background. But the other thing that makes me qualified to talk about this is while I was in the reserves, I also started, built, and I currently still lead a successful small business. So I feel like one of the things that makes me qualified to do this is I have seen real true leadership both in the Marines and in the civilian world. And I have also seen some absolutely horrible leadership in the Marines and the civilian world. So I think it's my ability to compare and contrast leadership styles across both the military and the civilian world, which will give me the insight I think that's useful in getting my future guests to tell the very best stories of their careers. With that, I'm going to use a couple of my personal stories with the remaining time I have left in this first episode as examples of moments that I had in my career and how they crystallized into lessons that shaped my leadership style and future decision-making. So very early on in my career, I was a young artillery officer. So for people listening who don't know what that means, artillery is the classic job that you see in any war movie where there are big cannons shooting 100-pound projectiles in an arc to somewhere where there is enemy in the distance. One of the components of an artillery unit is a group of people called forward observers, and they are exactly what they sound like. They are observing those big 100-pound shells impacting forward, okay? So very early on in my career as a second lieutenant, I was stationed in 29 Palms, California, which is essentially the desert training facility for the United States Marine Corps out in Camp Pendleton, just north of Palm Springs. It's hot, dusty. No one likes living there, but everybody likes training there. It was a fantastic, huge, huge area. And because it was such a big area, they conducted a lot of very interesting training out there. And one of the training sets that involved the artillery community out there was shooting artillery in support of a school that was training aviators how to stand on the ground, talk to airplanes in the air, and tell them where to drop their bombs. Those people are called forward air controllers in the old days, and now they are called Joint Terminal Attack Controllers, or JTACs. My mission was to take a group of Marines and some radios and go get onto an observation post with all of the aviators and all the instructors from the school who were training to learn how to and be qualified for speaking to aircraft and telling them where to drop their bombs. Now, this was back in the very early 90s, and the way this was done back then was an artillery unit would shoot a, a marking round, which was essentially a white phosphorus. So you can imagine a big white plume of smoke when it, when it explodes on the ground, very visible. And then they would shoot high explosive ordnance, which was designed to simulate 
suppressing an enemy air defense system or something like that so that it was safe for the aircraft to fly. And so not only were the pilots learning how to stand on the radio and look up in the air and tell the aircraft what to do and read them their set of instructions, but they also had to learn how to do that component of the artillery mission as well. So marking the target and then suppressing a target with the high explosive ordnance. And my job was to go up there and be the liaison between the pilots who had the controls that they had to do and the artillery unit that was shooting the missions. I got to stand next to all of the students and the instructors for every single mission because every single one of those pilots had to do at least three or four controls in order to become qualified to do it. And each one of those controls required an artillery mission. And so there was probably 15 or 20 students there. So you do the math real quick and you can see that I really got to learn how to do some forward air controlling or J-tacking through osmosis. I just had a front row seat and I got to listen to all of the briefings. I got to listen to all of the debriefings. I got to listen to every single radio call and everything was on these speaker boxes so I could not, I not only got to hear what the pilots on the ground were saying to the pilots, but I got to hear what the pilots were saying back to the pilots on the ground. And I also got to hear all the instructors give their critiques afterwards. So mission after mission after mission, I'm just learning the repetition, I'm learning the cadence, and I'm learning all the lingo, and I'm kind of figuring out what makes a good mission, what makes a bad mission. And I could almost forecast when a mission was going to go really well and a mission was going to go really poorly based on just how confident the pilot was in giving me the mission for the artillery marking and the artillery high explosive ordnance. A couple days into this week-long evolution, we found out that the Navy was going to be sending in as a group of aircraft that were going to be dropping their bombs the old F-14 Tomcat. Now, everybody should recognize the F-14 Tomcat for its role in Top Gun. It was the plane that, it was the aircraft that Goose and Maverick and Iceman and Viper and everybody else flew. Actually, Viper didn't fly, but whatever. Goose, Iceman, you get the point, right? It's the sweep, it's a big, big, and it was a fighter plane. And in the 90s, they figured out that they could upgrade some software and have it also drop ordnance bombs. So it was new. It was a new mission for that aircraft. It was uh, some, something that most of the pilots didn't have a whole lot of experience in. There were a bunch of Tomcats that came out for this training exercise and they started getting nicknamed the Bombcats. So the Bombcats show up and now you can almost start to see this recipe for potential disaster. You've got pilots on the ground who are very, very new at learning how to call aircraft in to drop ordnance. You've got aircraft flying around that have very, very little experience in actually pointing their nose at the ground and dropping a bomb on a target. And you've got new software and a lack of familiarity with it in a fast-paced environment. So one of the pilots gets up and he starts giving the mission. I call in the information back to the artillery unit. It's going to fire that white marking round. And it's going to fire the high explosive ordnance to suppress the the enemy, the, the make-believe enemy aircraft and aircraft units, the guy just starts spazzing out. And, and I could just tell, I, I, he was a captain and I could just tell he was way out of his league. He was about five minutes behind everything that was going on. And even as a person who had only been there for three days, I just immediately started seeing like this was going to be a bad situation. The aircraft started its attack run. And for people who don't understand how this works, attack run essentially just think of a plane that's just diving its nose at the ground, kind of coming down out of altitude and it's going to drop a bomb and then pull off the pull off and pull up and gain altitude again. And they're moving very, very fast. And if aircraft are dropping ordnance at a very high altitude, they're very difficult to see. The pilot was messing up and messing up and it kept making the aircraft turn around and go in a circle and do it again and do it again and do it again. And as you can imagine, aircrafts, 
don't have an unlimited amount of fuel and can't stay around forever. And so it became very clear that if the pilot on the ground didn't get it right this time, that the F-14 Tomcat was going to have to turn around and go home. And that's a big no-no when you have a, an aircraft ready to drop ordinance and you don't capitalize on it. The aircraft comes running in and he says he can see the target over the radio and the pilot on the ground clears him to drop his ordinance before he has a visual, before he has any visual recognition of the aircraft. And the F-14 Tomcat came in, dropped its bomb, and that bomb hit the observation post where 30 of us were standing. Now, luckily, the way that the bomb hit, the geometry of that bomb hitting, so it was a 500-pound bomb, which is a big, it's, if an artillery round is 100, round, 100 pounds, this is 500. It's a big boom. But the geometry of it, we were standing on one side of the hill and the bomb hit on the other side. So if you took a ruler out and you drew a line on the map between where we were standing and where the bomb hit, it, it looked really close. But because of the terrain and the geometry of where we were, most of the dirt and all the shrapnel and the explosion and everything kind of fired off over our heads in an arc. And nobody, nobody, thank God, was hurt. That was the first time that I ever saw in my life a major, a mid-level officer chewing ass on another officer in plain sight. It was, I hadn't seen anybody get yelled at that like that since I was in officer candidate school or boot camp. I mean, it was, it was an ass chewing of epic proportions. And I'll never forget, it was one of those, that was a crystallizing moment for me. I learned that day on that hill with a bomb that hit our observation post because of a lack of control and a lack of proper procedure and a lack of situational awareness, both on the ground and by the pilot in the air, that you do not ever tell an aircraft that it is allowed to drop its ordinance called cleared hot. That's what that's the term that gets used. You never clear an aircraft hot unless you are absolutely sure that bomb is going to go somewhere where it's supposed to go versus where it's not supposed to go. One of those crystallizing moments. And I really, at that point in my life, I had no idea how that was going to tie into future events in my life. So you fast forward now into late 1991, early 1992, and we're doing a massive training exercise out of 29 Palms. And when I say massive, I mean it was tank battalions and light armored reconnaissance battalions and two artillery battalions and infantry battalions in, in their armored vehicles. And part of the training exercise was to test the operational ability of a command unit to control the movement of troops through the impact area, the coordination of the artillery that was getting fired out into the impact area, and the coordination of aircraft dropping their bombs all at the same time. So a highly choreographed, highly structured, very dangerous event that had to be commanded and controlled down at a level that was overseeing everything. When those exercise happens and there's a command group, they, every unit that has a command group, think of like an infantry battalion or a, a, in this case, it was a tank battalion out of 29 Palms. They have what's called an alpha command and a bravo command. That's exactly what it sounds like. The alpha command is the lead command and the bravo command is kind of the backup command. Well, here's Dave Armstrong, second lieutenant Dave Armstrong, artillery officer, and I am in the bravo command because I'm just... I'm the B team. I'm, I'm JV, right? So we're sitting there and the coordination for this exercise was the introduction of the B-52 Air Force bomber and the B-1 bomber, the bone, 
the integration of those two aircraft in a conventional role, because if you remember back in the early 90s, those were the aircraft that were part of our nuclear triad that were always armed with nuclear weapons. But in the early 90s, as we started to try to find more conventional roles for those aircraft, they had never really dropped bombs like that before. So this was an exercise where they were going to come out and validate their use as a conventional weapon system to drop regular bombs. So like a B-52 had done it back in Vietnam, but you think about those carpet bombing things that you see when you watch the old Vietnam War news clips or whatever, the B-52s were going to roll into 29 Palms and just carpet bomb an area and the B-1 bomber was going to come in and drop bombs like, like I was describing before when we were on that observation post with the F-14s. So I'm chilling out, I'm hanging out. And we're about 10 minutes away from this whole thing kicking off. We get a call on the radio down down the JV team, right? The Bravo Command. We get our call. It was the operations officer and I and a couple other, some of my Marines radio operators. And we're hanging out. The boss of the Bravo Command is, is at the time a guy named Rick Mancini. He, he looks over at me. He goes, Armstrong, the Alpha Command just shit the bed. They have no power, no radios, no comm. We are on in 10 minutes. So it's you and I. I looked at him and I thought, oh my God, I don't even, I mean, I'm not a qualified person on the Hill. I'm not, I didn't go through that school to tell aircraft where to drop their bombs. I certainly knew how to do the artillery side of it. And, and he just looked at me and he said, can you make this thing happen or not? And I said, let's do it, sir. Here we go. It's just him and I, I have a radio in each, each ear. I'm holding up these two handsets. I'm standing up on top of this Amtrak. I got a corporal radio operator standing next to me with some binoculars. We're looking for the aircraft. And I start calling in the missions, right? I start calling into the artillery unit, like grid to mark, grid to suppress. These are terms that we use in the radios. Grid to mark, grid to suppress, time on target. That's like when everything's supposed to hit the ground, all the bombs are supposed to hit at once. And, and so I get the, I get the artillery all lined up. I got the, that takes me two seconds, right? Cause I go back to that day on the hill where I just, the repetition and the instruction just over and over and over again. I did it. I didn't have to write a single thing down. I just call that thing in. And then I get the other radio that's designed to talk specifically to the airplanes. The one that I'm never allowed to touch, right? Cause I'm just the artillery guy. I pick that up and I start talking. Now here I am, I'm talking to B-52s and B-1s that are coming in in five minutes and they're going to drop all their ordnance in one of the biggest training exercises that the base has seen in a, in a calendar year. And as I'm doing that, the regimental commander, who the reg, the Seventh Marines Regiment is headquartered out there in 29 Palms. The regimental commander is a full bird colonel, so one rank less than a general. He comes driving up, and he just parks his vehicle right next to the Bravo Command, and he's standing there with his master, his senior enlisted guy, and the senior enlisted fire support coordinator at the time. And the three of them are standing there, and all eyes are on me, and they don't they don't know who I am. I don't really work for them. I don't see them very often. I really couldn't give it a second thought. And so the aircraft comes rolling in. I give them all the instructions over the radio. They come in, drop their bombs, hit the target. So I ran the, I ran the suppression from the artillery. I ran the aircraft. And there was no one there challenging me on how to do it. No one was asking me if I was qualified to do it. I guess everybody just assumed that I was supposed to be doing it. And that crystallizing moment was, hey, you never know when you're going to have to step up and do something. And you never know when you're going to have to step up and start stringing together those crystallizing moments that took place earlier in your life and your career. Because had I not been out on that hill doing the F-14 Tomcat mission, I would have never had those crystallizing moments of how to run the aircraft, how to talk to aircraft, how to get 
that fire support going, how to call those missions in. I would have never, I would have never been able to do that. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe somebody else would have stepped up and, and done it. But at that point it was me and that was, that was my job and I'm the one who stepped up and did it. So that's another one of those crystallizing moments. And you can, and the point I'm trying to make here is you start stringing together these moments and how they crystallize in these leadership lessons and they start shaping your leadership style. And what I realized was that when things start going wrong, you cannot really take the luxury of time to figure out a solution when there is a time limit on something. And you just have to go with what you know. At Between the, the F-14 Tomcat time and this operation where we were calling in all the aircraft, I started to realize that your confidence in yourself and the confidence that you exude around other people plays a major role in how you are perceived by those around you. Because I was literally being stared at by a full bird colonel who was not the most friendly guy in the world and, and one of exacting standard. He was, he was of exacting standards and his senior enlisted fire support coordinator, who was another guy who was, you know, of exacting standards. And I stood up there with two radios in my hand and ran all that, ran that entire mission. And they had no idea that I probably wasn't very qualified to do it. The lesson learned about not clearing those aircraft hot, there those those Air Force aircraft wanted to be cleared hot 2 minutes before they even came into the training area and had I not seen that situation where an aircraft was told they could go ahead and drop their bombs before it was ready to, it's very possible that those aircraft could have misidentified a target and dropped ordnance where they weren't supposed to. So that crystallizing moment came back to me as well. Now if I'm going to fast forward onto the third and final story here, but Later on my career, still as a lieutenant, I was sent to Somalia when we had that, I don't know if you want to call it an invasion, but our, we got sent over there, right? Peacekeeping mission. When I got sent to Mogadishu, I was originally supposed to link up with a tank unit that never ended up coming. So I went first and then the tank unit never came. So I didn't really have a job. And one of the things that my commanding officer had instilled upon me, instilled in me, again, as a crystallizing moment was... Never go out to a training area where you do not have the ability to pick up a radio and talk to an airplane and tell them to stop what they're doing because the battery that I had joined, my artillery unit, a battery it's called, when I joined that artillery unit, they had just come back from Desert Storm and they were a unit that had been hit by friendly fire with Sierra Battery 511 for my Marine listeners. It had been misidentified by a friendly aircraft in A6 and they dropped a 500 pound bomb onto the artillery unit because they thought it looked like a tank. They were a self-propelled artillery unit, so they probably did look like a tank, but it was a lack of situational awareness and a Marine was killed and another Marine was very severely wounded. And so my commanding officer, who was the commanding officer at the time in, in Iraq also said, you know, you never go anywhere without the ability to talk to an airplane because you never know when they're going to misidentify and start shooting at you. If you can't tell them to stop, you got a serious problem on your hands. So I had a radio in Mogadishu with me in my kit that allowed me to talk to an aircraft. We were given a mission. I was attached to 1st Battalion, 7th Marines out of the stadium in Mogadishu. And we were given the mission of going on a raid to capture a bunch of enemy equipment that was being used to ambush Americans that were providing security for food convoys. We roll into this cantonment area, it was called. It was a big area where all this equipment was being staged. The infantry platoon that I was attached to immediately started taking fire. And it wasn't like a war movie that you see, but there was there was fire going on 
but we were still in control of the situation. Things hadn't really degraded. And the platoon commander and the company commander came over to me and said, can you get some of your artillery Marines to go into that building over there and get eyes on the backside of that building? Because there's a road that comes into the containment area. And we want to make sure that no technicals or enemy come up that road and, and just, you know, drive in an attack from that direction. So I sent two of my Marines into the building. They climb up onto the second floor. They eventually get out on the roof and they start taking fire themselves. So I have two Marines that are pinned down on a roof. They are not in a position to return fire, but because the way the roof, the geometry of the roof, the slope and everything, it was too hard for them to get up and over the peak of the roof. But they were able to see down the road a little bit. And they call back to me on the radio in a panic that there was a vehicle coming up the road. They could see a pickup truck coming up the road. I immediately get on the radio that can talk to the airplanes and I ask them to take a look and see if they can see the vehicle too. So two attack helicopters, they're called Cobras in the Marines, two attack helicopters came in to the battle area and said that they could see the truck too. So I told the infantry company commander, I said, hey, sir, the helo's got eyes on it. And he said, can you have them take it out? I was like, oh shit. Well, here we go. And I get back on the radio. Now I start stringing together those crystallizing moments, right? I'm back on the hill as a second lieutenant with the F-14s. I'm back in that Bravo command with two radios in my head, trying to tell aircraft where to drop bombs and remembering all those lessons learned. I didn't have time to take out a checklist. I didn't have time to pull out a piece of paper. I didn't have time to pull out a cheat sheet. All I had were those moments in time, those memories and experiences that had formed that I had formed at that point to get on a radio and potentially tell an attack helicopter to shoot a tow missile and take out an enemy vehicle that could be coming up and engaging the unit in a matter of minutes, if not less than a minute. So I'm on the radio and I'm talking to him. The helicopter wanted to shoot. He had a visual confirmation of the target and he asked me for permission to shoot. And I immediately denied that mission because I knew from back on my time with the, with the F-14s that in order for an aircraft to shoot, they had to be kind of coming over your shoulder and not pointed at you. Because if, if an aircraft is pointed at you and they shoot something, it could go long and, and end up hitting you. You want it to be shooting over your shoulder and flying over your head in the direction that you're looking at. So I denied it. I said, you need to come. And now I'm just talking to him on the radio, like a normal person. You need to come around instead of heading south. I need you to be heading north to take that shot. So it takes 30 seconds for the helicopter to get all the way around. He's got to fly all the way around and come back in and go in and be pointed in the exact opposite direction of the original point where he was pointing. So he comes in and as he's turning, he probably has a better vantage point and everything than I do, but I see him and he's saying, okay, I've got target in my sight. I can see it. I can see the target. Am I cleared hot? And I immediately revert back over and I think he's not even pointing at the target yet. And he's asking me to clear him hot. There's no fucking way I'm going to let this guy shoot a missile at something that I can't even see when he's not even lined up at the target yet. Going back to that hill, going back to the F-14 thing, going back to the B-1 bomber, the B-52 and all that. And so I keep telling them like negative, negative, you know, continue. These are the terms that you use on the radio with the aircraft. Continue, you know, I need you to come in and heading 180, whatever it was. He's turning, he's turning, he's turning. He said, when I, when I am, when I am level, am I cleared hot? And that's not terminology that you use on the radio. And I knew that from listening to all these guys get critiqued over and over again. I was like, negative, continue until your wings level, continue until your wings level at a 180 degree heading, telling him over and over and over again. As he finally gets wings level, and I mean, he is just barely tipping down into a level run. And I have 
all I have tension on that handset. I am about to squeeze that rubber button and say cleared hot, which are the magic words for an aviator that tells him, go ahead and kill whatever you see in your, in your sight. And I am pulling in the slack on that button and I can remember it to this day. One of my Marines yells down, it's coming around the corner. The vehicle is, the pickup truck is coming, it's coming around the corner. And I look out of the corner of my eye one more time before I pull that handset in to transmit that cleared hot instruction. And that vehicle came around the corner. I will never forget that moment because I thought I'm too late. I have just jeopardized the lives of Marine friends because I was too cautious when it really mattered. But as that vehicle came around the corner, what I realized was that it was indeed a pickup truck, but it was only half of a pickup truck. What it was in actuality was the bed of a pickup truck that was being used as a trailer being towed by two donkeys. It was a fucking donkey cart and it had innocent civilians in it. I have no idea what the hell they think they were doing driving into a containment area that we're doing a raid in. They didn't care or they were just oblivious or they didn't think we would do anything and they were just going on with their merry way. But all of those crystallizing moments, right? Never clear an aircraft hot that you can't tell where the bombs are going to go. Never let an aircraft do anything. You maintain control of that aircraft. That aircraft doesn't shoot until you tell it to. You make sure that it has correct eyes on target. You make sure you have situational awareness. All of those crystallizing moments came up and exposed themselves in that one clear moment where have, had I made a split second decision in the wrong direction, I would have been waking up to nightmares for the rest of my life. And so as I tell those three stories and I talk about how those moments kind of each one of those stories has its own crystallizing moment and how it all ties back together into this one situation that massively impacted my leadership style and my ability to assess risk in training evolutions going forward and my ability to assess risk in a business environment. I have brought so many decisions back to that very moment and said to myself, hey, you know the right thing to do. You are a good decision maker. You have made decisions in the past that had been right when everything else was making you question those decisions. Trust your gut. Trust what you know. Trust your experience up to this point. Make good decisions. I have brought a lot of my own leadership, not only for the rest of my career in the Marines, but in business as well, back to those few moments and how it all culminated that one thing. So how does that all tie back to leadership? And why is that important to what I want to accomplish in this podcast? In the Marine Corps, now, each version of the service has their own iteration of these different things. But in the Marine Corps, we call them leadership traits and leadership principles. And the leadership traits are 14 different words, I'm going to read them to you, that we are supposed to just have memorized. I mean, they're just, they flow off of our tongue. They're taught to you the very first day you come in the Marine Corps. But they are supposed to be little memory joggers about what are the traits that you should have as a leader. And they are dependability, bearing, courage, decisiveness, endurance, enthusiasm, Bear with me. Initiative, integrity, judgment, justice, knowledge, tact, unselfishness, and loyalty. That's a lot, right? But each one of those words is really important as an individual leadership trait. Then when taking together, you string them together into leadership principles. And some of those leadership principles are things like know yourself and seek self-improvement. Be tactically and technically proficient. Develop a sense of responsibility among your subordinates. Make sound and timely decisions. Set an example, know your Marines and look out for their welfare. 
keep your Marines informed, seek responsibility and take responsibility for your actions. You can tell like 30 years later, I saw these, these things are still so ingrained. Let me see if I can remember the rest. Ensure that your assigned tasks are understood, supervised and accomplished, done, accomplished. Train your Marines as a team. Oh boy. Uh, employ your unit in accordance with its capabilities. I, there may be other ones that I missed, but I, those are the ones that are coming back to me 30 years later. When I think about those, those three moments and how they all came together, those are components to things like know yourself and seek self-improvement, right? I, I had crystallizing moments that allowed me to know myself and I knew where I needed to seek self-improvement. Being technically and tactically proficient, like I, those moments, those moments from those three stories were things that helped me develop my technical and tactical proficiency. Make sound and timely decisions. I mean, again, it's just those three things come back to that, those leadership principles. Each one of my future guests are going to have their own vignettes their own stories, their own moments, their own crystallized lessons, their own leadership styles. And I want to extract those stories from them so that they can be tied back to leadership traits and principles that can be used by everybody. Whether you are a brand new second lieutenant at your training in any one of the services, whether you are a junior enlisted Marine, a young NCO, a non-commissioned officer it stands for, whether you are a uh, new manager in a civilian business, whether you are a small business owner, whether you are the CEO of a major corporation, all of these things require leadership. And the military figured out these leadership traits and principles a long time ago. The key is how do you listen to other people's experiences draw your own conclusions about them and apply them to your own leadership style. That's what I want to get to in this podcast. So with that, I'm looking forward to creating five episodes with guests that I know well, and then I'm going to release them all at once. So this is episode one. I'll call it the trailer. Uh, I'm building on them from there, and I'm really looking forward to this project. Finally, uh, here's where you can find me. I have an Instagram site called The Mill Office, The Mill, M-I-L, Office. Um, or you can search Moments in Leadership. Uh, the podcast is hosted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all of that stuff. Uh, so find me there. Find me on Instagram. I'm not doing anything on Facebook. I'm not doing anything on Twitter. So if you want to follow along as I get ready to drop episodes, Instagram's a place to do it. Or just subscribe on any one of those popular podcast services and you'll just get it when you get it. So look forward to cutting my very first interview here in the next week and look forward to getting the rest of the four done and dropping them. So until then, Semper Fidelis and I'll see you at the next interview.